Dear Father, we ask for your presence in a very special way just now as we discuss the life of Solomon. Please help us to understand his wisdom, help us to understand his foolishness, and may our understanding of this bring us closer to you. Amen. Well, it might seem a bit ridiculous here. Look at what we're going through today. Uh, First Kings, Second Chronicles, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So um, the life of Solomon goes through much of First Kings, Second Chronicles, and then we're going to discuss the books that Solomon wrote. Of course, all of Proverbs is not Solomon, but um, anyway, the subject of wisdom, of course, goes through these books, and I'm pleased because uh, we're several lectures ahead of where we were two years ago when we went through the Bible study because what I discovered is we had to rush through the New Testament. So this time we'll have more time, uh, thankfully, to spend on the life of Jesus and many things in the New Testament. But, of course, for you second years, you'll miss out on that. But anyway, we'll get there eventually. Let's begin here with uh, some words in 1 Kings 2 as David is just about to... uh, Uh, Pass on. When David was about to die, he called his son Solomon and gave him his last instructions. My time to die has come. We're leaving out the part, remember, where he wished that uh, told Solomon, be sure to kill that guy Shimei. But my time has come. Be confident and determined and do what the Lord your God orders you to do. Obey all his laws and commands. Notice as written in the law of Moses, so that wherever you go, you may prosper in everything you do. If you obey him, the Lord will keep the promise he made when he told me that my descendants would rule Israel as long as they were careful to obey his commands faithfully with all their heart and soul. I mentioned this when we went through the book of Deuteronomy because I I find it just amazing here the very, very specific things that Moses gave in his last speech that applied to the time when they would have a king. Remember, God said, don't have a king. It's a bad idea. Don't do it but he knew they would. So he made provisions here and he made sure there were lots of rules that would help this king. Now, if Solomon had really paid attention to this, what would Solomon have learned? Deuteronomy 17, the king is not to have a large number of horses for his army and he is not to send people to Egypt to buy horses because the Lord has said that his people are never to return there. Did Solomon do this? Yes, Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his chariot horses. King is not to have many horses. And of course, we read about these exports of chariots from Egypt. And in 2 Chronicles 1, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. And the words in Deuteronomy were that the king is to read from these books again and again. And this would have really prevented Solomon from entering into and doing many of the foolish things that he eventually did. And this passage in Deuteronomy 17 continues. The king is not to have many wives. How about that? Because this would make him turn away from the Lord. Isn't that exactly what happened to Solomon? And he's not to make himself rich with silver and gold. When he becomes king, he is to have a copy of the book of God's laws and teachings made from the original copy kept by the Levitical priests. He is to keep this book near him and read from it all his life so that he'll learn not to buy horses in Egypt, he'll learn not to have many wives, so that he'll learn to honor the Lord and to keep obey faithfully everything that is commanded in it. This will keep him from thinking that he is better than other Israelites and from disobeying the Lord's commands in any way. I like this very much. If he would just have kept reading uh, here the, the writings that they had at this time, notice it would have kept him humble. 
that would have kept him from thinking that he's better than everyone else. And that's very true. Our time spent in individual reading, staying close to God, if we're looking at Jesus, we really can't think we're better than other people. So there is a humility that goes along with that. But of course, Solomon became very proud. But he got off to a good start. Solomon loved the Lord and followed the instructions of his father, David. And you'll remember the story here, but uh, we'll read through it. It's, it's really wonderful here, the start that uh, Solomon got off to. That night, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and asked him, what would you like me to give you? And just you know, off the top of your head, what would you ask if God came? And uh, you, know, you can choose. What would you ask for? Solomon answered, You always showed great love for my father David, your servant, and he was good, loyal, and honest in his relation with you. And you've continued to show him your great and constant love by giving him a son who today rules in his place. O Lord God, you have let me succeed my father as king, even though I am very young and don't know how to rule. I like the uh, humility there. Here I am among the people you have chosen to be your own, a people who are so many that they cannot be counted. So give me the wisdom I need to rule your people with justice and to know the difference between good and evil. Otherwise, how would I ever be able to rule this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so he said to them, because you have asked for the wisdom to rule justly instead of long life for yourself or riches or the death of your enemies, I will do what you have asked. I will give you more wisdom and understanding than anyone has ever had before or will ever have again. And that's where we get um, when we say Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. Uh, of course, he wasn't, right? Jesus came and would tell the people, you know, I tell you one greater than Solomon stands before you. So Jesus is ultimate wisdom. But Solomon, Solomon I suppose other than Jesus, you're the wisest man that ever lived. Now, what I like is that this wisdom is not just here an exclusive property or offer to Solomon. In James, we read, but if any of you lack wisdom, you should pray to God who will give it to you because God gives generously and graciously to all. Uh, a big part of what I'd like to talk about now is what is wisdom? What does it mean? Does it mean, um, you know, you remember stuff in medical school better? What is the ultimate wisdom uh, that the Bible is talking about? Well, that would seem to be part of it. But I want to try to come to the heart of what is this wisdom. It's interesting. What do you do with this verse? Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Is there a time that Jesus was less wise than at other times? Well, if we go all the way back at age three, age two, age 12, did Jesus have all knowledge and understanding, all wisdom? Um, he certainly did grow in wisdom. Jesus was God's son. We read in Hebrews, but by suffering, he learned what it means to obey. In that way, he was made perfect. Now, this is kind of challenging. Uh, was Jesus, did he ever have any sinful element? Of course not. Was, this would suggest uh, maybe there was a time he wasn't perfect, uh, but no. The illustration I like here is, you know, you take, uh, let's just say a bud on a tree that is eventually going to become a flower and later a fruit. Is it perfect when it's a bud? Yes. Is it perfect when it's a flower? Yes. But ultimately, it is growing to become a ripe fruit. So perfect at every stage, but yet ultimately uh, climaxing as a beautiful apple or, or whatever it is it might be. So 
kind of gets into the subject of perfection here a little bit, but two points I'd like to make here. One is um, it's sometimes suggested, you know, that uh, life is ultimately just about getting to heaven. And we live here and we do stuff, we work, we have families, and uh, but, you know, ultimately we're just waiting to die so that we can go to heaven. But aren't we copying Jesus in every way? Jesus grew in wisdom. Aren't we supposed to grow in wisdom and knowledge and relationship with God? And, and that's really what it's all about. Uh, the other point here with perfection, um, I had a conversation about someone about the subject of perfection recently, and uh, it was kind of interesting, but eventually I just asked, well, to be perfect, would that mean that you would have, uh, you would know exactly who the king of the north is in Daniel, that you would be able to label every single horn in the book of Revelation? You'd have perfect knowledge of all of these things. Is that what it means to be perfect? Well, what is sin? Sin ultimately in the Bible is described as rebellion, a distrustful relationship with God, a disconnection from God. Um, I think we have to be careful here how we uh, understand perfection. When Jesus was, when he was a boy and his father asked him to cut a piece of wood at a certain length, if we could come by with the most precise measuring tool, would we come exactly to that length? I mean, not a millimeter off either way. Um, did Jesus ever pull up a weed or trying to pull up weeds in the garden, accidentally pull up a plant? Would that be sin? Um, no. So I think uh, sin ultimately is about rebellion, a rebellious, distrustful attitude toward God. So Jesus grew in wisdom. But we want to understand, what is this wisdom? Of course, we have some stories. I wish we had more from the life of Solomon. You remember the two women that came and they both claimed that this baby was theirs. And you remember what Solomon did, cut the baby in half. And then, of course, the real mother came out at that point. They didn't have genetics testing at that point and couldn't, uh, couldn't prove who was the real mother. And I wish we could just hover on this verse for the whole rest of the Old Testament. I wish things had stayed this way because it's been pretty dark, hasn't it? All the way through, Joshua, Judges, lots of bad news, lots of bad things happening. But I love this verse here in 1 Kings 4. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. They ate and drank and were happy. This was a good time. All right, Solomon, in all his wisdom, there was a brief time of great prosperity here, but it was very, very short-lived. Some more evidence of this. The king of Tyre said, Praise the Lord today for giving David such a wise son to succeed him as king of that great nation. So Solomon and the kingdom of Israel was very much recognized at this time. They noticed the praise went to God. And the story of the building and dedication of the temple. I love this prayer of Solomon when the temple was dedicated. When a foreigner who lives in a distant land hears of your fame and of the great things you have done for your people and comes to worship you and pray at this temple, listen to his prayer. In heaven where you live, hear him and do what he asks you to do so that all the peoples of the world may know you and obey you as your people Israel do. Ultimately, all of these good things that were happening were for the purpose of bringing the entire world to know God. And if this bright light would have stayed, if it would have grown... Uh, would have been spectacular what happened in Israel. And a few verses later, and so all the nations of the world will know that the Lord alone is God. There is no other. This was a time of many, many gods. But had this gone on, uh, potentially the entire world would have been won over. We know it wasn't. Now there are little red flags that come up here and there. Right in this wonderful passage here, we read that it took seven years to build the temple, 
13 years to build Solomon's palace. That didn't seem to be quite have the uh, priority straight there. Um, and we know, remember Queen Sheba. More evidence just to the wisdom of Solomon. The Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame and she traveled to Jerusalem to test him with difficult questions. When she and Solomon met, she asked him all the questions she could think of. He explained them all. There was nothing too difficult for him to explain. The Queen of Sheba heard Solomon's wisdom and saw the palace he'd built. She saw the food that was served at his table, the living quarters for his officials, the organization of his palace staff and the uniforms they wore, the servants who waited on him at feasts and the sacrifices he offered in the temple. It left her breathless and amazed. She said to Solomon, what I heard in my own country about you and your wisdom is true, but I couldn't believe it until I had come and seen it for myself. But I didn't hear even half of it. Your wisdom and wealth are much greater than what I was told. How fortunate are your wives and how fortunate your servants who are always in your presence and are privileged to hear your wise sayings. Praise the Lord your God. Again, notice ultimately praise, honor, goes to God because of what Solomon was doing. He has shown how pleased he is with you by making you king of Israel. Because his love for Israel is eternal, he has made you their king so that you can maintain law and justice. Again, lots of good things happening. Here's the description. God gave Solomon unusual wisdom and insight and knowledge too great to be measured. Solomon was wiser than the wise men of the East or the wise men of Egypt. He was the wisest of all men and his fame spread throughout all the neighboring countries. He composed 3,000 proverbs. We certainly don't have all those. And more than 1,000 songs. He spoke of trees and plants, from the Lebanon cedars to the hyssop that grows on walls. He talked about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Um, really wish we had all of those writings. But kings all over the world heard of his wisdom and sent people to listen to him. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised, but notice there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and they made a treaty with one another. In a time when God really had a wise friend who was king and ruler, there was peace. They, won't, they weren't going off to conquer their enemies during this time. That naturally went along with it. This all ties back here to what God had been hoping for in having Israel as a nation in the first place. It was to win the whole world over. This verse in Deuteronomy 4, uh, this is the message translation. It's beautiful in any version, makes the same point. Talking about the law. Keep them, practice them. You'll become wise and understanding. When people hear and see what's going on, they'll say, what a great nation, so wise, so understanding. We've never seen anything like it. Yes, what other great nation has gods that are intimate with them? Isn't that something? The way God, our God, is with us, always ready to listen to us. This picture of God, the true God, the God of the Israelites, a God who's intimate with his people, radically different than any other God in that time. Okay, the hallmark of paganism is appeasement in a word. And the God of Israel is, 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 uh, wants to be intimate, wants to be close, doesn't need to be appeased. So Jesus would say, you are like salt, for the whole human race. Salt like a preservative. Preserve the truth. Preserve a true knowledge of God. You are like light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do. And they don't praise you. They praise your Father in heaven. So the ultimate desire to be a bright light to reflect the character of God 
is to draw people to God, not to you. But let's get to this subject of wisdom. What is this really talking about? The early part of Proverbs goes into this again and again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, what does this mean? The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Um, if we're absolutely terrified, scared to death of God, that's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, well, let's, let's just look at some other versions of this. To have knowledge, here things are kind of reserved, reversed, you must first have reverence for the Lord. So this fear of the Lord is reverence, respect, and when all of you become parents, you'll realize that a very fundamental starting point is reverence, respect, and then you've got to build on that. Um, when I was in college, our band teacher, I remember first month of band was uh, very strict Man, if you were late, you got chewed out, and uh, he seemed to have very little patience. And then I realized by my fourth year, this was a technique. He was getting a little bit of reverence, respect, and then the whole rest of the year was great fun. Okay, but he had to build that uh, in at the very beginning, all right? And then people learned, uh, you know what, he's actually a really nice guy. Okay, but he had to start out uh, maintaining some order. But that's the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. So what is ultimate wisdom? and knowledge. Notice what happens when you have wisdom. My child, pay attention to what your father and mother tell you. Their teaching will improve your character as a handsome turban or a necklace improves your appearance. We'll talk about this a lot when we come to Jeremiah, but there is a very foundational, fundamental law at work, and that is we become like the God we worship. We become like the God we love, trust, and admire. And if we're beholding God, we cannot help but become like that God. And what is the ultimate effect here is to improve our own character, to develop in us a Christ-like character. I'm going to make the point that ultimately all wisdom is Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus Christ hadn't come yet, but uh, let me try to uh, expand on this a little bit. Proverbs 2, my child, learn what I teach you. And never forget what I tell you to do. Listen to what is wise and try to understand it. Yes, beg for knowledge. Plead for insight. Look for it as hard as you would for silver or some hidden treasure. If you do, you will know what it means to fear the Lord and you will succeed in learning about God. Ultimately, that is the heart of wisdom, learning about God. Not facts, but learning real intimate knowledge of God, who God is. It is the Lord who gives wisdom. From him come knowledge and understanding. If you listen to me, you will know what is right, just, and fair. That certainly goes along with it. You will know what you should do. You will become wise, and your knowledge will give you pleasure. Yeah, I like that very much. This knowledge, it's, it's very pleasurable, ultimately, much more than anything else. Proverbs 9. To be wise, you must first have reverence for the Lord. Again, that's the starting point. But notice, if you know the Holy One... You have understanding. Understanding wisdom, again, just as we read earlier, is about knowing God, a knowledge of God. Eternal life is to know God. Eternal life is ultimately relationship, friendship, based on an intimate knowledge of his character. That's what it means to know all the way through the Bible. That's the heart of wisdom. And by contrast, listen to how the book of Proverbs concludes. These are the solemn words of Agur, some other guy. God is not with me. God is not with me and I am helpless. I am more like an animal than a human being. I have not the sense we humans should have. I have never learned any wisdom. And notice, 
I know nothing at all about God. The opposite of wisdom is to know nothing about God. Eternal life is to know God. This is the exact opposite of that. Foolishness is to not have an intimate knowledge of God. So now we get into New Testament stuff about wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, But God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus, and God has made Christ to be our wisdom. Didn't Jesus come to reveal to us who God is? I've come to make the Father known. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to bring us this knowledge about God. As the scripture says, who knows the mind of the Lord? Who is able to give him advice? But notice, we, however, have the mind of Christ. Can you get much closer than that, to have the mind of Christ? Going back to Proverbs, in regards to this wisdom, keep them at your fingertips and write them in your mind. Let wisdom be your sister and make common sense your closest friend. Okay, God ultimately wants this to be a mind thing. I mean, we are consciously directing our thoughts toward God. Uh, he relates back to us. And this wisdom about God is revealed by Jesus. And many other ways, uh, we become transformed. It is written on the heart. So what's the result? James talks a lot about uh, wisdom in James chapter 3. Are there any of you who are wise and understanding? You are to prove it by your good life by your good deeds performed with humility and wisdom. And this is bothersome. I know many people in the book of James, faith without actions is dead. And then we get into worrying about, uh, you know, uh, can lead to legalism and making lists of things to obey. Uh, but really faith and actions have to go together. I mean, if I told you a bomb is going to go off in this room in one minute um, and every, all of you said, yeah, I believe what you said, but only the half that actually got up and left really had faith, right? The rest of you didn't really believe it. So uh, faith has to go with a corresponding action. It's just the two naturally go together. Okay, but if in your heart you are jealous, bitter, and selfish, don't sin against the truth by boasting of your wisdom. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It belongs to the world. It is unspiritual and demonic. Where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is also disorder and every kind of evil. This verse contrasts wisdom and foolishness. And all of these traits that are described here describe Solomon when he became foolish. But notice, what does wisdom look like? But the wisdom from above is pure, first of all. It is also peaceful, gentle, and friendly. It is full of compassion and produces a harvest of good deeds. It is free from prejudice and hypocrisy. And goodness is the harvest that is produced from the seeds the peacemakers plant in peace. Again, these are all of the features in the life of a person who is wise based on that connection, relationship with God. Okay, so let's go through now some verses in Proverbs. I can't go through the whole book, obviously, but here are some of my favorite wise sayings in the book of Proverbs. When a fool is annoyed, he quickly lets it be known. Smart people will ignore an insult. Why is a clever person wise? Because he knows what to do. Why is a stupid person foolish? Because he only thinks he knows. Okay, these are, these are really good, very insightful. People with a hot temper do foolish things. Wiser people remain calm. If you want to be happy, be kind to the poor. It is a sin to despise anyone. Uh, someone counted up, and I can't remember, there are like 2,500 or 3,000, I don't know, so many verses about taking care of the poor 
in the Bible, it is uh, really remarkable. Um, just by looking at Christianity today, you might think that there were 2,000, 3,000 verses about, um, well, I don't know, I shouldn't even list the things that are uh, sometimes known about Christianity today. But uh, th- this is the heart, taking care of other people, the outcasts of society, rather than condemning the outcasts of society. It is better to be patient than powerful. It is better to win control over yourself than over whole cities. The battle over self, that is the greatest battle of all. Do what is right and fair. That pleases the Lord more than bringing him sacrifices. Okay, that applies to us today as well. There are so many verses in the Old Testament. Do what is right. That's what really pleases God. Don't bring him sacrifices. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. Now we think we're reading the New Testament here. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. I just imagine here Jesus the first time reading through his Old Testament. And uh, I think uh, you know he got very excited when he read verses like this. And this was really clicking for uh, what was at the heart of truth. Let other people praise you, even strangers. Never do it yourself. Anger is cruel and destructive, but it is nothing compared to jealousy. Better to correct someone openly than let him think you don't care for him at all. A nagging wife is like water going drip, drip, drip on a rainy day. (laughs) How can you keep her quiet? Have you ever tried to stop the wind or ever tried to hold a handful of oil? Now, I have to say, though, this reflects negatively on Solomon, not women. Okay? Because Solomon was the foolish one who had a thousand wives. And so what experience are you supposed to have if you have a thousand wives, right? So this is not negatively on women, I think. This is what makes Solomon look foolish, all right? He learned this through his very uh, foolish choices here. It is dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you trust the Lord, you are safe. Boy, this is worth reading and rereading. It is dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you trust the Lord, you are safe. Uh, Boy, is this important. If you derive your self-esteem and self-importance from what others think of you, uh, boy, that is really an empty road. Yes, there are brief moments of pleasure when others think well of you, uh, but then you're on this roller coaster all the time. So all self-esteem, self-value should come ultimately from God, not from other people. Being cheerful keeps you healthy. It is slow death to be gloomy all the time. Now, remember this one, because when we get to Ecclesiastes, Solomon would come to exactly the opposite conclusion. We should be thinking about death all the time. But notice here when he wrote, this psalm, being cheerful keeps you healthy. It's slow death to be gloomy all the time. And haven't we learned this in medicine studies about, um, you know, watching funny movies if you have cancer or whatever, that the outcome is actually better if there's a cheerful uh, disposition. Okay, moving on very briefly to the Song of Songs. You know about this, the poetic description of two young people in love. Why do we need a love story in the Bible? Uh, Can I just bring out a couple commentaries on the book of Song of Songs and tell me what you think about this? I won't say where I got this, but this is a very commonly held belief. The literal interpretation, that is that it really happened, there were these two lovers in love, has been rejected many times by both Jewish and Christian interpreters. The reason given for not considering the book a love song is the feeling that a sacred book should not be about the passion and joys of love between a man and a woman. 
Do you agree with that? Well, read on here. This is, this is a different source now, but because of its explicit language, ancient and modern Jewish sages forbade men to read it, read the book before they were 30 and presumably kept women from reading it at all. So that didn't stop lots of kids from reading it during church, right? To find some interesting little tidbits in there. Okay, but why do we need a love story with such intimate physical details uh, right in the heart of the Bible? So there's a literal view, which would say, well, there really was a relationship between Solomon and this Shunammite woman. And the literal view would say, well, God gave us love and the ability to fall in love and the freedom to create. It's a good thing. Why not have a book that celebrates uh, something? uh, I mean, who invented uh, sex? Was it not God, right? So why not have a book that uh, celebrates uh, something positive that God gave? So love, marriage, sexuality are wonderful things given by God. And I have to say, I, I like the literal view of this. Because I would say, you know, it is a misleading and misrepresentation to say that Satan has any true pleasure to offer us in any way. What Satan does is takes all the good things and perverts them. He has not a single pleasure to offer. So if we notice the difference between a healthy sexual relationship in marriage, it is other-centered, really. It is an other-centered experience. All... Other forms ultimately are self-centered. Prostitute, I mean, you're concerned about pleasing the prostitute uh, in that kind of um, encounter. Those are ultimately self-centered. Now, they may temporarily appear pleasing, but the outcome is always devastating. So Satan has no pleasures to offer. All good things are ultimately um, from God, even though it sometimes might appear otherwise. But I would say there's something else besides a literal view of this, I think it definitely does parallel our relationship with God. And we could make such a good case for this, but I like how the book Song of Solomon ends in chapter 8. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For notice, for love is as strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Remember, God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Uh, God is hot. And ultimately, this is describing the great love of God, which is like a great flame of fire. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. And what I see God doing all the way through the Bible is using every illustration, every means that we can identify with to tell us that he loves us. And let's just go through a number of these, many attempts. The lover relationship. I think the the point of Psalms is maybe you have a very healthy marriage. And that helps you to identify, my goodness, God loves me in that kind of a way, that kind of intimacy. Uh, That seems incredible. But that would, I think, be the point of this book. And God specifically would refer to us as the bride, right? What happens at the very end of the Bible? God's people are dressed like a bride, ready for her husband. And then, of course, even more remarkable, the book of Hosea Which, what does that describe? God's bride becomes a prostitute. So God would cut her off, right? No, the book of Hosea shows Hosea chasing her all over the place, going to buy her back. So even when God's bride becomes a prostitute, he's still interested. He's still chasing after her. That's incredible. So maybe that didn't work. So God uses other means. Okay, I'm the good shepherd. Maybe that one will work. And so we have Psalm 23. I'm like a shepherd to you, my sheep. Jesus would say, 
If only one out of the 100 leave, I'm going to go track that one sheep down. And then ultimately he would say, I am willing to lay down my life for my sheep. Okay, we don't, we're not, today we don't have sheep and shepherds right here in Loma Linda. So maybe that doesn't ring very true with us. So how about Isaiah 5, a vineyard owner? I'll sing a ballad to the one I love, a love ballad about his vineyard. The one I love had a, a vineyard and we get this very tender description of how God built up this hedge, took care of it, did everything for it, and uh, then how things went wrong. But again, it's, a, it's another tender way of God describing the, the great emotion and the passion that he has for each one of us. But maybe that didn't work. So how about a friend relationship? Jesus would say, I don't call you servants anymore because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. Another way, another angle perhaps of God trying to reach us with what he really wants to have with us. Maybe that doesn't work. Now, who could deny this one as being not uh, tender? We can all identify with this. Could a mother forget a child who nurses at her breast? Could she fail to love an infant who came from her own body? Even if a mother could forget, I will never forget you. I mean, how wonderful here, the, the different varying descriptions. How about a mother hen? Maybe you can't identify with anything else, but a mother hen. How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me? Does that work? How about a father? We have the story of the prodigal son. The son's off in the pig pen. But notice, while he was still a long way from home, when his father saw him, his heart was filled with pity. I mean, it just seems like the Bible is God using, pulling out all the stops here with these illustrations. And of course, Paul would synthesize all of this in Romans 8. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above or the world below. He's just including everything. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. But notice, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We really wouldn't believe it had Jesus not come to show us that God the Father loves us. Not the God Father, but God the Father. In 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So is it convincing, compelling enough? Yes, I think so, in my mind. Anyway, but unfortunately, we have to end this Bible study with everything going very, very sour. Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides the daughter of the king of Egypt, he married Hittite women and women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidon. He married them even though the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with these people because they would cause the Israelites to give their loyalty to other gods. Solomon married 700 princesses and also had 300 concubines. They made him turn away from God. And by the time he was old, they had led him into the worship of foreign gods. He was not faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. He worshiped the goddess of Sidon and Moloch, the disgusting god of Ammon. We've talked about this god several times who killed the babies in his fiery hot hands. He sinned against the Lord and was not true to him as his father David had been. On the mountain east of Jerusalem, he built a place to worship Shemosh, the disgusting god of Moab, and a place to worship Moloch, the disgusting god of Ammon. He also built places of worship where all his foreign wives could burn incense and offer sacrifices to their gods. Even though the Lord, the God of Israel, had appeared to Solomon twice and had commanded him not to worship foreign gods, God actually came to him and told him two times 
not to go down this road, Solomon did not obey the Lord, but turned away from him. Surprising where you come across little insights into this, but in Nehemiah, they were again having a problem with the people marrying foreign women. And we read that it was foreign women that made King Solomon sin. Here was a man who was greater than any of the kings of other nations. God loved him and made him king over all Israel, and yet he fell into this sin. Now, we don't have a lot of details about this, but after Solomon died and his son, the people came to his son and said, your father placed heavy burdens on us. He taxed them out of control. It became all about his army, his palace, his money. He became extremely selfish uh, in this uh, transformation. So here's what's interesting here. What should God do at this point? And what I really find remarkable is what God did was he basically told Solomon, hey, why don't you write it down? And so we have the book of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, if, a, if uh, I told you, here's a book that is inspired, and you might say, oh, who wrote it? And, oh, it's a guy, you know, he wasn't involved in child sacrifice for a while, um, but this is a really good book. Um, you know, would you be a little bit skeptical? Well, the 51st Psalm, isn't that just about the most beautiful thing in the whole Old Testament? When was it written? Immediately after David had committed adultery and had Bathsheba's husband murdered. And here it's a wonderful, it is inspired, absolutely. So the people that God chooses to write inspired things in the Bible, um, well, these are not perfect people. What do we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes? These are the words of the philosopher, David's son, who was king in Jerusalem. It is useless. Useless, said the philosopher. Life is useless, all useless. Now imagine if Jesus had come, God in human form, and on the Mount of uh, Olives or his first sermon, this is the message of Jesus. It's all useless. Okay, what do we learn from this book? He would go on in Ecclesiastes 1. God has laid a miserable fate upon us. I've seen everything done in this world, and I tell you, it's all useless. It is like chasing the wind. What do we learn about God? In Ecclesiastes 4, I think this is very important. A poor youngster with some wisdom, that was Solomon early on, is better off than an old but foolish king who doesn't know which end is up. He's really describing his own experience here. He became a fool in this process. So, but we do learn a lot from Ecclesiastes. For example, what about money? Useless. I've accomplished great things. I built myself houses and planted vineyards. I planted gardens and orchards with all kinds of fruit trees in them. I dug ponds to irrigate them. I bought many slaves and there were slaves born in my household. I own more livestock than anyone else who's ever lived in Jerusalem. I also piled up silver and gold from the royal treasuries of the lands I ruled. Men and women sang to entertain me. I had all the women a man could want. Yes, I was great, greater than anyone else who had ever lived in Jerusalem. And my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I got. I did not deny myself any pleasure. I was proud of everything I'd worked for. And all this was my reward. Then I thought about all that I had done and how hard I had worked doing it. And I realized that it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind. No use at all. After all, a king can only do what previous kings have done. And I can just tell you right now that if your goal is to make a lot of money, it's a dead end. There is no pleasure there. Okay, we do learn a lot from... King Solomon, he's describing his experience. Going after money and all of this, it didn't bring him any pleasure. 
And I like how this uh, he comes back to this in Ecclesiastes 5. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. It is useless. The richer you are, the more mouths you have to feed. All you gain is the knowledge you are rich. So we learn. Write it down, Solomon. This is a dead end. Don't do what Solomon did. Chasing after many women. Useless. The truth is beyond us. It's far too deep. So I decided to learn everything I could and become wise enough to discover what life is all about. At the same time, I wanted to understand why it's stupid and senseless to be an evil fool. Here's what I discovered. A bad woman is worse than death. She is a trap reaching out with body and soul to catch you. But if you obey God, you can escape. If you don't obey, you are done for. With all my wisdom, I've tried to find out how everything fits together. But so far, I have not been able to. I do know there is one good man in a thousand, but never have I found a good woman. (laughs) Again, I don't see this reflecting negatively on women. What did Solomon expect when he married a thousand of them? That he'd have a harmonious, happy home? All right, so this speaks poorly of Solomon not women. I did learn one thing. We are completely honest when God created us, but now we have twisted minds. Absolutely true. Now, the the trouble here is, is everything useless? What do you think about this? I decided that God is testing us to show us that we are no better than animals. Now, just imagine, this is not the Bible. Just imagine I get up here and this is now the little speech that I'm going to give you. After all, the same fate awaits human beings and animals alike. One dies just like the other. They are the same kind of creature. A human being is no better off than an animal because life has no meaning for either. They are both going to the same place, the dust. They both came from it. They will both go back to it. How can anyone be sure that the human spirit goes upward while the animal spirit goes down to the grounds? So I realized then that the best thing we can do is enjoy what we worked for. There's nothing else we can do. There's no way for us to know what will happen after we die. And here we have the exact opposite to what he just said in Proverbs. Someone who's always thinking about happiness is a fool. A wise person thinks about death. When he just said in Proverbs, the exact opposite thing. He's really turned around. Here is what I found out. Imagine Jesus came and said, here is what I've come to tell you. The best we can do is eat and drink and enjoy what we've worked for during the short life that God has given us. This is our fate. So I'm convinced that we should enjoy ourselves because the only pleasure we can have in this life is eating and drinking and enjoying ourselves. We can at least do this as we labor during the life that God has given us in this world. Is this a a pinnacle of wisdom understanding here? Or is Solomon describing, well, he became a fool and uh, it is kind of sad that this is uh, his view on life at this time. I thought long and hard about all this and saw that God controls, now think about this, God controls the actions of wise and righteous people, even their love and their hate. No one knows anything about what lies ahead. It makes no difference The same fate comes to the righteous and the wicked. Is that true? To the good and to the bad, to those who are religious and those who are not, to those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. A good person is no better off than a sinner. One who takes an oath is no better off than one who does not. God made everything and you can no more understand what he does 
then you understand how new life begins in the womb of a pregnant woman. And don't we have so often, though, in the Bible, in the Bible, the counter to this? Jesus would say, I don't want to call you servants anymore. I want to call you friends. And the verse goes on to say, why? Because you'll understand what I'm doing. God wants us to understand. No matter how long you live, remember that you will be dead much longer. There's nothing at all to look forward to. And it ends here. Listen to this. The philosopher tried to find comforting words. He tried. But the words he wrote were honest. He wrote what he really felt. And this is what he really felt at the end of his life. And the book of Ecclesiastes concludes, after all this, there is only one thing to say, have reverence for God and obey his commands. I think Solomon really did come back to God. Have reverence for God and obey his commands because this is all that we were created for. God is going to judge everything we do, whether good or bad, even things done in secret. So I think the point here is we see Solomon as the complete dichotomy contrast in his life. At one time, he lived the principles of God's kingdom. He was humble. He was teachable. Um, and he was a bright light to the world. All those verses we read. Things were great when he was on God's side. But another time, he accepted the principle of Satan's kingdom, which I would say at its core is selfishness, power, greed, survival of the fittest. We will kill others to save self rather than laying down our lives for another. And he became a foolish king. So the point here is we learn incredibly important things from the life of Solomon, which I would just summarize as this. If we base our life on the principle of God's kingdom and on true wisdom, Jesus Christ, we become successful, but successful as God defines success. That doesn't mean rich or powerful. Maybe like Paul, imprisoned, receiving the 39 lashes, whatever, but successful from God's description of success. If we base our life on the principle of Satan's kingdom, which we see in the life of Solomon, on a false picture of God, we become foolish. Again, that may be rich and powerful, but foolish as God would describe foolish. So the summary point here is God's way leads to healing, restoration, happiness, peace, joy, wisdom. It works, and it worked in the life of Solomon. Look what happened early on in his life. But the other way, Satan's way, leads to self-destruction, gloom, foolishness. It doesn't work. We see the exact replica of both sides during the life of Solomon, and we get to choose which one. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, again, we pray that we would have true wisdom, true understanding, true knowledge of you, that Jesus Christ would become the heart, the center of everything that is important to us, that we would grow in our relationship, our intimacy with you, and again, that we might be transformed to reflect your goodness and love to this world. Amen.